This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, the Affordable Care Act is once more under threat as a federal appeals court is deciding on its constitutionality. Last December, a Texas judge ruled that the ACA was unconstitutional after Congress removed the individual mandate penalty in the tax bill. A three-judge panel in New Orleans heard arguments on the case yesterday. It could be months before they reach a decision, and it's likely that this case will head to the Supreme Court next session, but it would put it front and center during the 2020 election. Should the law be struck down, around 20 million people would lose their insurance. A wide range of the health care system would be impacted and protections for those who have pre-existing conditions would be eliminated. The high court has already upheld the ACA in two previous cases. With more, we are joined by Mark Pauley, professor of healthcare management and professor of business economics and public policy here at the Wharton School. Also with us, Rob Field, a law professor and professor of health management and policy at Drexel University. He's also a lecturer here at the Wharton School in healthcare management. Gentlemen, as always, great to see you both. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. Give us your sense of uh, of what we may be looking at here, um, Rob, from the from this from this three panel court. Well, it ain't over till it's over. Right. Uh, the uh, 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 Affordable Care Act is the opera that never ends. Uh, people, uh, legal scholars, were surprised when the district court uh, upheld the claim of the plaintiffs. It's based on very very shaky logic. Uh, but he did not implement it immediately. He put a stay on it, so yeah. the law uh, remains in effect. Uh, People were surprised yesterday when the appeals court seemed to support the lower court decision, uh, suggesting that they would affirm it. Uh, But it opens a whole set of questions. Uh, What will they do? Will they end the stay and and allow the decision to go into effect, which would implode the Affordable Care Act and with it much of our health care system? It's more likely that they would keep the stay and let the case go to the Supreme Court. And then we're going to have a huge drop. Uh, once again, uh, where John Roberts is really going to be on the hot seat, and we're going to see whether once again uh, he's the deciding vote to, to save the law. Mark, well, this thoughts? is uh, being uh, an issue uh, of, of legal reasoning, not economic reasoning. So uh, I, I'll defer to Rob on that. I will say what I've noticed is it, it causes both the media and politicians to push the silly button again yeah. and say things that are uh, uh, um, uh, implausible. I heard one commentator yesterday who said, well, the long-term solution to this is for people just to keep themselves healthy, which is true if you're uninsured but you never get sick. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter that you're uninsured, but that doesn't seem very reasonable. Uh, to be a little bit more specific and more uh, pointed, um, uh, the the Times said this morning this was uh, going to have an enormous effect on health care, but it's um, 20, 20 million people, millions, because it would yeah. affect millions of people. Well, millions. How many millions? Well, 20 million. That's 7 percent of the U.S. population. So if you think of this as a kitchen table conversation, 93 percent of us don't have to bother to talk about this at the kitchen table, except, of course, about concern for those 20 million people who are our fellow Americans. So as usual, it's kind of blown out of proportion, I think, relative to uh, the overall health care system, although it's certainly uh, – I've, I've certainly taken the view of supporting the Affordable Care Act and the individual mandate, which I will be um, heartsick if it's declared unconstitutional. Uh, my view is 
you should be required to have health insurance just like you're required to wear clothes in cold weather. <laughs> <laughs> and in warm weather too. Yeah, actually. yeah, in warm weather too because you don't want to do harm to yourself or embarrass other people. So <laughs> it's a lot like that. But we, but we do have the right in this country to make choices and, and I think that's what some people believe. Dumb choices, is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, well, and, but then it's self-harmful. Harmful choices. Correct. Is, and that's the difference. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think that 20 million number is an underestimate. Oh, probably. Uh, that, yeah. That's the people who would lose health insurance, presumably. But you also have the people who are taking generic versions of biotechnology drugs. Uh, and, and that market has been facilitated by the Affordable Care Act. Patients who are within accountable care organizations that hospitals are running, uh, those are facilitated by the Affordable Care Act. Uh, medical students who are getting loans, uh, people on Medicare uh, who don't have to pay the donut hole for, for drug coverage, uh, the, uh, uh, all of the uh, quality measures uh, in the Affordable Care Act regarding Medicare patients. So yeah. the impact would be much broader. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're talking about the latest uh, around the Affordable Care Act. Your comments, again, at 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I guess the big question, Rob, is whether or not we expect this, again, to be before the Supreme Court at some point in the near future. It's already seen it twice, but it appears that with this ruling... Uh, or I should say the Texas ruling, and whatever may come out of the ruling in New Orleans, we may see this appealed up to the Supreme Court again. Yeah, I would say before yesterday, uh, people would have said the odds were against it, that this court was not going to uphold the lower court. Uh, based on the questioning, it seems like they will, and I would put my money on the case going to the Supreme Court. Uh, I think uh, one of the in- big initial questions is the timing. Will they hear it, and will they decide it before the 2020 election? Because it could have a huge impact. I think, yeah, I think one of the silly things that uh, showed up is uh, a law professor, some of whom are my friends and more of them are Rob's friends, uh, apparently didn't take the same forecasting course that I took where the professor said, always forecast what you don't want to have happen. Then either you'll be right or you'll be happy. Yeah. Instead, they forecast what they did want to have happen, which to a person, at least from what I've seen, always is, well, overturn the uh, district court judge judgment and then that'll probably be the end of it but it looks like here as more or less uh, continuously throughout this uh, process the predictions uh, of of the legal experts on what's going to happen have turned out to be wrong but was the was the penalty put in place for people not having insurance was that the right way to handle that in the first place uh I, personally, I believe so. In fact, okay. I thought the penalty should be, well, equivalent to the premium for a low, the lowest price acceptable plan. So you might as well be insured. Right. Uh, not so much, I mean, for to prop up the stability of the exchanges, which actually turned out not when it went away, it turned out not to undermine them all that much, right. but to uh, make sure that, just as I said earlier, the people who, the few people, a relatively small fraction, 4 or 5% of the population, who somehow just don't get the idea that they need health insurance when they're not sick, 
would not be able to engage in that kind of behavior because when they do get sick, of course, that imposes yeah. psychological and financial costs on the rest of us. So uh, uh, the so-called shared responsibility payments, I thought responsibility was the right word there, yeah. uh, that people should be – if they can afford it, they uh, they sh- uh, and the, the, the law heavily subsidizes people who can't afford it. So the people who can afford it should be responsible for um, – uh, in the first instance, uh, paying their bills, and uh, the way to do that is to have insurance. So first to defend the legal prognosticators. Um, <laughs> I, I think m- most of the time they're right, I think, if you were to look at the data. Uh, but this, the one time that they're really wrong uh, is when it's all over the New York yeah, Times. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, same, same for the weatherman, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But um, in, in, in terms of the, the mandate penalty, uh, a lot of thought, uh, much of it by very eminent economists, uh, yeah. went into uh, designing that and, and looking at the incentive it provided. But actually, they were wrong about something, which is they've gotten rid of the mandate and the markets have not collapsed. Uh, in fact, yeah. the number of people buying insurance through the exchanges is about the same as when there was a mandate. And, and that's, I well, guess, to sorry. defend economists, uh, so the, the, uh, the people buying insurance on the exchanges, the great, great majority of them are heavily subsidized. So right. for them, the mandate really didn't matter uh, because even if they were low risk, they weren't paying much for their insurance and they might as well keep it uh, or sign up for it again. Now, I've actually been trying to poke around and find out there's about one-third of the people buying individual insurance on the off-exchange market and uh, uh, see how stable those are. So the stability of the on-exchange market is a little bit uh, misleading. It's it's sort of evolved into a kind of extension of Medicaid primarily with subsidizing relatively low-income people and uh, with a subsidy, in most cases, so generous that uh, – that uh, they don't, as I said, they don't need a mandate. Uh, it's almost free. Uh, but uh, the off exchange market, where uh, small businessmen uh, who uh, make too much money to qualify for subsidies could buy insurance um, if if it will unravel, uh, that would be the place more yeah. likely. And we know much less about that, of course. Rob, you mentioned uh, a moment ago the, the arguments and how they were framed mm-hmm. before the appeals court may be a, a significant factor in that appeals court upholding the Texas ruling. For those people that haven't followed it specifically, what, what do you mean by that? Well, there's really a two-step process here. Number one, one is, is the mandate now unconstitutional because it's been zeroed out? To me, that's something out of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, the mandate was constitutional when it existed. Uh, now when the penalty's been eliminated, it becomes unconstitutional because it essentially doesn't exist. Right. Uh, that, to me, defies logic. But the thinking is that it was constitutional as a tax. If the tax number is zero, then that basis uh, goes away. So the next question is, this is one provision in a huge huge statute, 2,000 pages long. Yeah. Um, what did Congress think? What did they want when they got rid of it? Did they want the whole rest of the statute to go away, just the mandate, yeah. or just the provisions involving the exchanges? Um, the district court said the whole law is so intertwined that everything has to go. Um, I think that stretches things since Congress voted in mid-2017 not to throw out the rest of the law. But that was the judge's reasoning, and that was a lot of the focus of the hearing yesterday. 
How much? Go ahead, Rob. Well, uh, Mark. Mark, I was just going to say, back, I'm still on silly. So uh, the counsel for the House, uh, which who is uh, they're they're opposing. Um, uh, the, the judge's decision. Well, Justice Roberts decided that the law was constitutional because of uh, because the penalty was a tax, and it's constitutional to levy taxes. Uh, the uh, counsel said, "Well, the uh, the law that was passed last year just." reduce that tax to zero. And zero is just a number like 3%, so there's still a tax. And I guess, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh. yeah, well, that was kind of my reaction, too. There's this tax, but it happens to be zero. Uh, it, I, I probably, it, it, I probably won't challenge Rob again, but sometimes legal reasoning does seem to... Uh, uh, and is it a tax if, if, any, if nothing is coming in? Yeah. That yeah. too. Uh, so, so a couple of points. One is there are plenty of cases where taxes are zeroed out, usually okay. for periods of time. Right. Uh, so you can have tax abatement where, where it's zero. Mm-hmm. It's still on the books, but it can be brought back again. Yeah. Um, there's another point that didn't get a whole lot of consideration, which is that it's not really constitutional because it's a tax. It's constitutional because it's not a regulation. And the challenge was that Congress didn't have the power to impose this regulation because it was affirmative. It was forcing people to enter commerce uh, rather than rather than restricting commerce once that they had entered it. It still lacks the features of a regulation. Right. It doesn't have a punitive penalty. Uh, the penalty is not out of proportion uh, to to what you've done. In fact, a zero penalty is not out of proportion to anything. So if we accept that it's not a tax, that doesn't mean it suddenly becomes a regulation again. Uh, I would argue that with no penalty, it becomes nothing. Mark? I can't argue against that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, you ta- well, let's go to the timing uh, of how this may play out for a second, because as we both have mentioned, uh, the Supreme Court may very well hear this next year. Right. It's, it's a possibility, uh, which would put it in play prior to the 2020 election, which I, I think at this point we all expect or we all assume that there is a good portion of this bill that is a political battle right now, and it is just going to heat up that political battle over the next 12 months. So I have to think the Democrats uh, are conflicted right now because it was a big winner for them in 2018, the threat of health insurance getting taken away. And it actually was a, a, a winner in uh, 2012 when Obama was up for reelection. Yeah. So if uh, this goes to the Supreme Court and people see a threat uh, of losing their insurance beyond those 20 million, uh, the others who would be affected by this, uh, that could be a great motivator for turnout in, in the election. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that actually I would – again, you shouldn't forecast what you want to have happen, but uh, I think uh, um, the uh, emergence of, uh, of, a, of a majority in both houses uh, and, and the presidency might actually lead to the – after all, the real solution to this problem is new legislation. It really yeah. shouldn't be through the courts. Uh, and um, uh, maybe we can get off the dime at least in terms of uh, – of uh, structuring legislation, and you could be bipartisan in this. Uh, Republicans actually do have some ideas about how to do it, although you may not like them. But and Democrats have some ideas, I guess, although I do not personally all understand all of them. But uh, but it, it seems like uh, this is a this. Uh, if anything uh, in in politics was a job for the legislature, it's this one. 
It is, and I'm going to make another prediction, which is that they're not going to visit this before the election. Uh, Not before the election, but after the election. That that could be the resolution of the the logjam. Which obviously becomes a dynamic uh, that could be very interesting, depending on who ends up winning the presidential election. And because I think we both can all agree that whoever wins the 2020 presidential election is obviously going to be guiding this one way or the other, either to, again, if it's President Trump, to fully get this fully repealed, or if it is a Democratic candidate, to make sure that it is strengthened so that it can stay in place for, for a long period of time. I think we can predict that if one party controls both houses of Congress and the presidency, something's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, either the Democrats are going to reinforce the law or the Republicans are going to either repeal it or chip away at it. There's another interesting dynamic going on, which is at the state level. Mm-hmm. Some of yeah. the Democratic states are passing mandates of their own. Yeah. And um, Pennsylvania just set up its own exchange. Uh, it yeah. had resisted that up until now. Uh, it, it, so what, what you're seeing is 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 this, spl- this regional split, uh, and that might get uh, more exacerbated. But that follows a pattern that we're starting to see in general right now with the federal government wanting to pull away from a variety mm-hmm. of different programs and states wanting to step up and kind of fill the fill the hole that has kind of been left there. And, and, and many of them are. Um, now, there's only... Some so many holes that they can fill. Right. Uh, the changes to Medicare that the law provides, uh, states can't do that. That's a national federal program. Right. Uh, the generic biotechnology drugs, again, that's a national market. Uh, but in terms of these exchanges, uh, you could see uh, states going one way or the other and then more of a, a split, uh, just as there is with Medicaid. Mark? Again, you don't want to predict too much, but uh, a, a potential for bipartisan agreement is actually to turn, to basically kick this problem back to the the states, because a lot of Republicans are in favor of that, too. And the idea yep. would be, well, if California wants to uh, essentially enact Obamacare or even single payer, they should be allowed to do it. And if Idaho wants to handle the problem of the uninsured by beefing up a system of uh, free clinics and uh, hospital charity care, they should be allowed to do it, too. My proposal uh, my proposal I've been trying to work on is they, they sh- states should be allowed to do what they want. Want, but there should be standards for performance, like how, what proportion of people are uninsured in your state. So you can do whatever you want right. in terms of what kinds of insurance could be sold and whether or not it can be risk rated. But you uh, uh, would lose your block grant if you um, uh, uh, if the consequence of that was that the number of uninsured rose too much. Uh, but uh, uh, but as long as you met certain standards that reflect the interest of everybody in the country then how to get there, uh, you know, lock yourself out. But the economics then, I think, become a question in this because, obviously, California putting together a, a plan for health care and Idaho, using the yeah. example you is, financially, you're talking about two very, very different things and whether or not each one of those states could run a program successfully and then also throwing in the national piece uh, of Medicare as well. Right. Um States make a lot of decisions about how they're going to spend their money, roads, schools, uh, culture, uh, health care. So this would be one more area. And and people would understand if you're going to live in Idaho, uh, don't get sick. Um, And and that's going to be part of the uh, lifestyle decisions that the politicians make. 
Mark? Yeah, well, when you get down to the uh, methods uh, to, say, deal with the uh, high-risk people. So one method is the method in the uh, current law, which is to have low-risk people pay more for their insurance than it's worth to them or than it costs for them to help out high-risk people. The other, which I've talked about here before, which I think is better from an economic point of view, is to have general tax funding of a high-risk pool. Um, But there's a lot of differences of opinion, and that's all they are because nobody knows the facts about which would work better. And if you said, well, state, you can do whatever you want, um, uh, just uh, you, if, you, if you end up having a lot of high-risk people losing their insurance coverage or paying enormous premiums, you're going to have to give back uh, a bunch of federal money or some kind of penalty. It's kind of like trying to discipline your teenagers. You know, eventually you run out of sanctions. But, uh, but uh, that, that potentially could uh, be a resolution now. Uh, uh, of course, politics more likely predicts continued stalemate and and maybe chipping away at the executive level by the feds if the Republicans continue to control the president. I want to go back to something from a couple of years back. We had Ezekiel Manuel on this show, one of the the crafters of the ACA. And again, I've used this comment. I think it's a it's an incredibly important comment that Ezekiel Manuel said on this show a couple of years ago that even he realizes that there were things about the ACA that could have been changed, could have been tweaked to make it better. Are we past, well past that stage at this point? Um, I'd like to think we're not, uh, but this is an outlier law. In most cases, you have a huge law like this. There are lots of mistakes. Yeah. Some of them are yeah. minor, some of them are major, and Congress would revisit it, pass a Corrections Act, maybe several as the years go by, and try to patch it up. It certainly happened with Medicare. Yeah. Uh, it's unusual for it to become such a hot potato that Congress can't handle it almost 10 years after it's been passed. Mark? I think we are beyond that, uh, at least temporarily, until Medicare for All blows over, uh, which I think it will, or maybe I'm, again, trying to predict. (laughs) Don't violate my rule. Don't predict, Mark. Uh, But some things that are being talked about, like should there, can there be, could there be a public option uh, uh, to expand choice? Uh, That actually, um, the idea of expansion of choice, of course, is a good Republican idea, and the idea of a public option is a good Democratic idea. And if those people would stop hollering at each other (laughs) um, uh, or hollering to the TV cameras, maybe they could actually agree on that fix, which I personally believe would be a a good one. Um, But uh, but that, that, again, my amateur political prediction is that until the, the mania for something called Medicare for all. I mean, you could define whatever ends up as Medicare for all. Maybe that's the best thing to do. But until the mania for single payer, fully tax financed, a totally government run insurance model for the country as a whole blows over, uh, even if maybe some states were allowed to do it, that'd be okay. Um, You're not going to get back to trying to uh, tweak the Affordable Care Act to make it work better. It definitely could be tweaked and could work a lot better. I think, but it still works pretty well. Actually. I, I want to get back to the state flexibility because I agree that could be room for compromise. And yeah. there is some flexibility in there now. States can come up with an alternate plan, but mm. there's a heavy burden on them to justify that yep. plan. Sure. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a revision to the law could make it easier for them to do that. 
we have had a situation where only one state had Obamacare, and that was Massachusetts yeah. with, with Romney's plan, which was the only state for about six years. So it clearly can work on a state-by-state basis if the politics would let it. The problem is, I think, at least from the state perspective, and give me your opinion on this, Rob, is the fact that in so many states we see their budgets already strapped. I mean, with issues, you talk about education. How many states are dealing with education funding problems already? And then to add this layer on top of it would not only impact potentially the healthcare side, but also a lot of these other programs as well. Yeah, but it's the same as with any of the other pro- programs. You're going to have some states that think education is really important. Yeah. Uh, it's going to attract pe- people to live there. It's going to attract corporations because they'll have a better worker pool. Yeah. Uh, other states that feel it's better to reduce taxes and, and promote economic growth that way. So I think you throw it into the mix. It definitely is expensive. Medicaid is the biggest item in most state budgets. Yeah. Uh, but it's a value decision in, in our federalist system uh, that's supposed to be decided on the local level. Well, right now it's a good time because actually many states are pretty flush. Pennsylvania is, for example. So the the sort of uh, 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 conventional wisdom of impoverished states always uh, down to their last dime doesn't hold in this uh, massive economic expansion that we're having, which brought a lot of money into the states. And then the other uh, part of a solution, at least uh, the way Republicans look at it and maybe some Democrats, is that the federal government could make block grants to the states to make money available so that the I, we can't afford it. I mean, it's, what does afford mean? And I think I've talked about this before. In economics, it has no meaning other than a value judgment, but the statement that we can't afford it would not be a legitimate uh, objection. Uh, the statement that, well, we'd rather have lower taxes or we'd rather spend the money on roads is a legitimate statement, but yeah. not a noble one. With Especially with a $21 trillion debt that we have in, yeah, in this country like, right can now, the, too. Can the federal government afford it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in, in terms of Pennsylvania, you mentioned that pro- program. How are they, how are they structuring this to, to potentially make it work the best here in, in Pennsylvania? Right. So that maybe other states are, you know, that have to think about this as an option moving forward. Right. When the law was set up, it gave states the freedom to set up their own exchanges and said, for those who don't, the federal government will take it over for them. Yep. The expectation was there would be a small handful of states that would rely on the federal government. Instead, it turned out to be the vast majority. Yep. Uh, only about a third of the states set up their exchanges. Uh, Pennsylvania was one of those that refused. They are now jumping on the bandwagon, creating their own exchange. The state-based exchanges have generally performed better than the ones that the federal government has handled. Why so? Um, I think they don't have the burden of dealing nationally with all the different situations. Uh, you remember it was the federal exchange uh, where the computer uh, yeah, the froze computer glitch, w- yeah. when, when, when they began. Uh, that didn't happen at the state level. Uh, I think <laughs> working with, uh, with the local providers, local insurers, uh, is, is easier for them. If it works for Pennsylvania, others may follow. Is there an element uh, then of that, uh, of kind of the geographic makeup uh, of an area like like in Pennsylvania, obviously being different than Montana or Idaho or or even California, that makes it easier. Especially using Pennsylvania as an example, with the with the blues that are here in this state, working with those healthcare providers to be able to focus just on on a certain group of people in a certain area. Yeah, probably. And I think that's actually an argument for turning this back to the states. Although I think many of the states that did not set up their own exchange, it wasn't because they couldn't. It's because they didn't want to touch this 
with yeah. a ten foot pole because yeah. they were controlled by Republicans. Yeah, uh, and uh, if it didn't work so well in their state, they weren't ne- the politicians weren't necessarily all that upset about it. But, Whereas in the states that set up their own exchanges, I think to a state, they were ones that wanted this to work. Yeah. if there's enough will, there's a way. But do you still have about thirty seconds left? Do you still have to have though the partnerships at times between states to be able to deal with certain issues as they pop up? Well, you need partnerships between the states and the federal government mm-hmm. because yeah. that, that has to work just right. Yeah. Uh, partnerships between states would be great. Maybe that's the next phase of this. But uh, so far, I'd be happy if individual states could could do this well. I don't know. Maybe we could have the Delmarva plan, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Get all three states right in there. Yeah. Great. Great to see you guys again. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. Mark Polly uh, from here at the Wharton School, professor of health and healthcare management and professor of business economics and public policy. Rob Field, law professor and professor of health management and policy at Drexel University. Also a lecturer here in healthcare management here at the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.